Welcome to Executive Perspective, Behind the Business. In this podcast, we bring you insights and perspectives from government leaders and executives around the Beltway and beyond. Welcome to Executive Perspective. I'm your host, Doug Russell. Today, we're sitting down with Bill Sullivan. So welcome, Bill. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. So can you share with our audience a little more about your background, how you got into this interesting business called government contracting? I'm a little unique, actually. I came in 25 plus years ago. I was working at EDS just after Ross Perot had bought them. I went through what was called their sales development program, which at the time was an in-house executive MBA program. They put some of their junior executives through. But upon graduation from that, and it took a little over a year, I was assigned to the state operations division. So mm-hmm. at the time, that was the largest single business unit outside of GM for EDS. They ran all 16 or 18 statewide Medicaid systems. They ran a number of different welfare processing and eligibility mm-hmm. claim systems. Mm-hmm. So initially upon graduation from that, I was sent up to St. Paul, Minnesota, and then I was sent out to California. And I developed a bit of a reputation as a smoke jumper. In lieu of actually going out and finding new business, I'd parachute into accounts that were having trouble and Mm -hmm. would go and try to work out the differences within the account as well as between the account and the state government, Mm -hmm. as well as obviously trying to set them up for additional growth. So it was was an interesting way to uh, enter government contracting. I like to liken the program to sort of a Jesuit education on how to run a company. Right. At the time, <laughs> EDS was one of the most admired companies in the country. Yes. And, and they had operational excellence in many ways. And it exposed me across uh, not just the underlying contracting and technology mm-hmm. side, but also all, all disciplines of the business, marketing, finance, sales, consulting, delivery, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've, I've rolled that forward over the years to, you know, first to do some, some fixes. You know, mm-hmm. at Tivoli IBM, I, I start up and ran their North American state and local group, was the business unit executive of the year for uh, IBM software in the Americas running state and local. And they moved me over to the commercial Southeast region. Mm-hmm. In that role, I was uh, business unit executive of the year for the IBM software group globally. Right. Did some fixes at PeopleSoft, joined PeopleSoft mm-hmm. and, and, you know, was running their North American state and local group when uh, they were acquired by Oracle right. and helped do the integration there, as well as uh, AWS. I set up their federal systems, uh, their relationship with the federal systems integrators, the mm-hmm. top 20 systems integrators. And, and each one has been uh, been successful, helped Cloudera stand up their public sector group and fix mm-hmm. it in the lead up to their IPO. Mm-hmm. And most recently joined in for with an eye towards doing the same. I was hired by Charles Phillips, the CEO. And of course, two months into it, Charles was moved out. And then two months after that, many of his executives were moved okay. out. So, so it's been an interesting ride. But I, I, over the last 10 or 15 years, I've also, you know, run the, the federal operations for a number of these companies as well. I think I probably had the best exposure to that working for folks like Marty Fredrickson, Dave Donovan, Mm -hmm. you know, at uh, working with them at at Tivoli and, you know, have uh, gradually gained exposure over the years. So that's that's how I got into it. And it's it's unique here because it does give me a broad background. A lot of the, the federal contractors, we see the federal SIs are moving to state and local to sort of 
broaden out their portfolio mm-hmm. as well as, uh, you know, ameliorate some of the swings in revenue that they sometimes mm-hmm. get in the last six, eight years, particularly in the federal market. Mm-hmm. It's been a great ride. I enjoy it. It's a, it's a high stakes game oftentimes. I, I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, no, I think it's definitely a feast or famine. I appreciate you giving that backdrop. There's a lot of people you mentioned, EDS. There's a lot of great leaders have come out of there. Of course, EDS has kind of evolved into HP, then NTT Data, Dell, and sort of kind of morphing that. So a lot has changed over there. So maybe it would just kind of give maybe your idea of what maybe you think has changed the most in, you know, the last, uh, the GovCom business since you started this, first started out EDS. You know, I, I think from a contracting perspective, as the business models have shifted, the mm-hmm. contracting perspective has changed accordingly. I mean, mm-hmm. back when I first started, it was mostly, you know, hardware was king and they were buying hardware and there were certain approaches to that. Software came into, into to the fore and now we see, you know, clients serving the Internet, mm-hmm. but now, of course, the cloud. And, and so each one of those business models requires a different contracting process. Right. I had a unique experience Running uh, the division of AWS, I had a Air Force lieutenant colonel on my staff. He was a Air Force fellow assigned to AWS for the year, and he came out of the classified procurement space. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting to hear his perspective on, you know, how government does it well and not, and how industry does it well and right. not. And I, I think, without going into too much detail, I think the one thing that really is a is a huge change, and and not to the better is the rise of protesting as almost a standard part of the procurement process. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a strategy almost. Yeah, it's a strategy, you know, yeah. and, and, and that's unfortunate in a lot of ways. First, it is, even if a procurement officer runs a, a thoroughly clean procurement, you know, they're going to see this procurement, they're going to see a protest. And that, right. that that is a frustration for government, for a government uh, customer. Secondly, it prohibits government from acquiring new technology in a timely basis at a time when they really need to. Right. You know, I, I would point to all the activities around the Jedi procurement. Now, I no longer work for AWS. I don't speak on behalf of AWS. But I will tell you, in my opinion, what some of the other companies have been doing to protest this is nothing short of a disgrace. The technology that is available to government that can help the government, not just, uh, you know, in a national security space, but in the DOD is well proven. Mm-hmm. And watching how this procurement process has taken place, I think, is is an embarrassment for those that have been that have been taking part in it. Right. And, and what it's done is it has prevented government from accessing these technologies in a timely fashion. And that that represents a risk to our country. And it also makes the public sector market much less attractive to mm-hmm. those companies who might otherwise want to participate in the largest acquisition, the customer that is the largest acquirer of software globally. They look right. at it and say, do I need this headache? Right. And a lot of times people come to the conclusion that they do not. And so what you have is through this protest as a process is a prohibition on government really right. moving as quickly and serving the citizen as it could, as it wants to, and as uh, a lot of other companies are desiring to do so. Yeah, it's, it's quite the juggernaut. So one of the things you kind of emphasize a lot was uh, technology and acquiring those services. I wanted to maybe pivot a little bit now that technology is sort of the leading front of things we have. A lot of our audience has uh, younger generation kids are coming up through the ranks. And then so uh, my next question was more about if you go back uh, to give yourself 
your career or life advice to your younger self, what would you say? There's a couple of fashion choices I probably would forego. <laughs> I might yes. not have had that mohawk when I was in college yes. swimming. Yeah, there you um, go. Now, you know, I, I run on, on, on principles, which are increasingly important to me as I get older. Mm -hmm. You know, going all the way back to childhood, I remember uh, there was a saying, you know, to whom much is given, much is to be expected. And I, part of the reason I enjoy being the turnaround guy, being the guy that comes in and fixes it mm -hmm. is because... I have that ability. Right. And so I seek sometimes the biggest, hairiest, nastiest problems. And I, I look to go fix that because that principle has always guided me. And, right. and, and, you know, I thought about it when I was younger and I, you know, when I look at why do I do what I do? Right. I now realize that's really a guiding principle. And I would say have confidence in that right. because the, the technology business is changing so far, so rapidly that the chances of you're staying with something for 30 or 40 years as our parents did or our grandparents did right. is very, very slim these days. Right. So you might as well do something that offers the greatest value that challenges you the most and affords the greatest outcome for the most. So that's the first one I'd look at and right. remind myself of. Mm -hmm. The second one is, is something that general Powell, Colin Powell told his children. If you read his book, it's a great book. Yeah. And he said, you know, everything looks better in the light of day tomorrow. So sleep on it. You know, right. as younger, I might be more prone to making a rash decision. I don't right. do that so much anymore. And, 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 and the, the wisdom of those words has come forward to me. And I, I really have uh, really appreciated it and thought about it. And, and so, you know, as, as you grow more senior in your career, you make decisions that have an impact on far more people's lives than do just your own. Right. And so it's important to, to take time, sleep on it, think about it in the morning. And, and, and the, the facts that will look different, you'll probably right. make a better decision. And, and then the third principle, I apologize. The no. third principle I'd look at is, is I think it was Winston Churchill once said, you know, if you've made some enemies, that's a good thing. You finally stood for something. Yes. Yeah, I, I think probably more people in this world think, well, the bill solve them than don't. But there are some right. that don't. And that's OK, too. Right. Uh, I don't regret that. I've made some enemies along the way. made a lot of friends. It's a wonderful industry. It's a wonderful town. Made friends in government and out. But some people don't. And that's OK. I wouldn't worry about it. So one of the things you, you hit on there, too, talked about, you know, having the confidence of being a fixer. And you mentioned that earlier, too. What do you think the derivative was? Is there something else that may, drove you to be this sort of fixer? Were you an athlete? Is there something that maybe drove you? Is there something maybe innate in your upbringing that may have led you to this philosophy? Yeah, two things. First, I am an athlete. I swam through four years in college. Okay. I also played with a very uh, competitive wind ensemble through high school and college and toured Europe and so forth. And I love the elegance of music. Mm -hmm. When music comes together perfectly, it's a beautiful thing. And when you can get a division or of a company or an entire company in synchronization, mm -hmm. it is like, uh, you know, conducting an orchestra. It's like being part of an ensemble. And if right. I played music seriously with an ensemble would understand what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. There's a beauty to it. There's an elegance to it that, that can only be achieved, frankly, in music. But also, if, if you get all the elements of a business functioning correctly mm -hmm. and people are engaged, it makes going to work a joy. And, right. and, you know, I touched earlier on, I've been number one at this company or that company right. or something that happens not because Bill Sullivan is the Sig Ziglar of public sector sales. Right. It happens because 
I strive for that, getting all those pieces of an organization mm-hmm. in alignment and get them in sync, operating in a synchrony, synchronicity. And, and, and therefore the output is greater than the sum of the parts. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I strive for. And I, that, that is what I personally seek to achieve out of business because in doing that, not only does a customer derive value from the effort, the individual right. employees in the company believe that they're doing something meaningful. And, and, right. and increasingly when you talk about young kids, the millennials, they have to believe they're doing something meaningful. They're not right. willing to just go grind at the stone for eight hours right. a day. They'll do something <laughs> else. If you've got to make it meaningful. And finally, for me, it's a realization of the skill set I have. Now, I do still, I do still compete, do a lot of open water swimming. I, mm-hmm. you know, ride bikes, motorcycles, whatever. And so, you know, also business is competition. And, yes. you know, you never lose that edge. And, and right. that's part of the reason I, I like to try to go find the biggest, hairiest, ugliest mess and try to go fix it because it that's is uh, it satisfies that competitive spirit inside of me. Very good. Well, that kind of leads me to the next question. There's a lot of times when you're fixing things, maybe there's opportunities there to you have to maybe stretch beyond what you normally would do. So is there a time in your life where you maybe had to stretch yourself in order to learn and grow? And then kind of what did you learn from that process? Anytime I go into a new company, I've joked, it's kind of like I'm Father Marin coming in out of the smoke, out of the fog, you know, and the patient is doing yeah. sit-ups at 60 miles an hour in the bed and spinning right. greens pea soup around the room, yeah. right? So uh, I, they don't call me when everything's going good. They right. call me when things are going really right. poorly. <laughs> and I go in and I, you know, I, I have a framework that I use to evaluate an organization very quickly. It only takes a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And I can usually figure out what I need to do for each discipline quickly in order mm-hmm. to be, you know, in order to get things getting in sync right. in sync. The challenge, the stretch comes from two two ways. First, there's always the unspoken politics in any given environment that you just don't know. Right. And there's no way you can know. And even people that are there don't fully understand or appreciate it. And so, you know, you have to sit back and try to read a lot of different things. And, mm-hmm. and you know, frankly, sometimes I'm successful most of the time, but not always. Right. And then the second thing is, each company, there's a, there's a different fundamental product or service they're selling. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a stretch. You know, I have friends that have spent, you know, 20 plus years doing EDP, ED, excuse me, ERP in the public sector, right? They, right. they know more about public sector, you know, cost accounting or human capital management mm-hmm. than most people ever will. And they have the advantage of, of building on what they know. When you go from, Tivoli, which is enterprise systems management, to uh, PeopleSoft, which is mm-hmm. public sector ED, e- ERP, to right. Lockheed Martin, uh, the savvy technology, which is uh, tracking of uh, enterprise tracking of assets in the logistic chain around the world. You're talking about wildly different underlying business processes. Mm-hmm. So although I feel comfortable going into a company and evaluating it, it, it takes a takes a while and it is a it's a white knuckle ride particularly yes. when i come yeah. in and things are on fire anyway right to quickly figure out the technology and what is the fundamental value proposition for that technology right. in the market and oftentimes that is key to doing a turnaround mm-hmm. is to understand you know if, if you sell a, to a ceo anywhere in the company in the country mm-hmm. They care about one of three things. You show up in a CEO's office, you better hit one of three things. How do I grow revenue, market share, or profitability? Okay. Right. Taken in total, that is the value proposition that mm-hmm. you're going to, you're going to address when in the commercial sector. When you're talking to government, none of that matters. Right. The value proposition in government is keep me out of the newspaper. Right. And it's a very 
different value proposition. And so it could be, how do I maximize funding from the government? How do I minimize risk? How do I, you know, enhance the program? But fundamentally, government does not want to be on the front page of the Washington Post or the Tallahassee paper, the Austin paper, the Sacramento paper. And of course, IT scandals are a spring sport around the country with government. So, so, you know, the stretch is what really is the value proposition this product or service offers Mm -hmm. government? And how do I now translate that into a meaningful way that what my company is offering is, you know, is positioned in a discrete value generating way Mm -hmm. to government? Right. So, you know, so it's easy to come in and diagnose the problems. It's much more complicated when you deal with the politics. And then finally, right. fundamentally explaining to a company, hey, you're not going to have you're going to have to shift your value proposition if you're if you're going to be successful in public sector. And a lot of, you know, I have found that a lot of commercial executives they are very bright. They'd like to do government. But other than, you know, they pay their taxes, they return their library books and they register their dogs. They really don't <laughs> know a lot about public sector. Yeah. And so walking them through that in an already politically challenging environment can sometimes stretch you. Definitely. Like I said, it's a white knuckle ride. White knuckle ride. So uh, just to follow on that, what do you think, is there something that stands there that maybe surprised you most in that process and kind of fixing, assessing an organization so you have people that you're dealing with this or you don't know what's in there? Is there anything there that maybe surprised you or you have a, a favorite story you can share that comes to mind off the top of your head. I always say, well, I've seen it all. Yeah. And then every day brings something new. I think, wow, <laughs> you guys are doing what? Yes. <laughs> right. And, and, and part of that is, uh, you know, the challenges that, that, that they're encountering that maybe I didn't understand before joining. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't think I could tell any specific stories without violating some confidences. So I won't, I, I'll just right. say that, you know, it, it, Many of the companies that I've worked for are 3,000 miles away out in California. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's for them, oftentimes it's like looking through the other end of a microscope, of a telescope. Yes. And, yeah. and, or a microscope. And they, you know, they really don't understand the, the, the complexity of government. And, and that can take place from, you know, why is the sales motion taking, you know, so long. 12 to 15 months instead of three to six months? months you know, right. why do we need to hire a retired flag officer? Why can't we just go knock on the door of the Pentagon? Because our product and service is so fabulous that we should right. be able to, you know, they're, they're going to recognize our genius when we get there. Yes. What is this whole contracting process you're talking about, yes. the GSA schedule, et cetera? And, and why right. is that important to somebody that does this as a career? And mm-hmm. I probably spent 70% of my time in the public sector at this point, you know, walking through some of these elemental things with people that are otherwise brilliant, right? right? This is not a comment on their innate intelligence, but on the fact that it's just a whole different world for them. Right. And it, 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 it can take any number of different flavors, depending on the product, the service, the company, where they are in their yeah. growth and what's happening. Yeah. Public sector is a unique animal. So. It's a different beast. So I want to pivot a little bit and ask a couple of more personal questions, if I may. So if that's okay with you. Yeah, sure. So what is your favorite city to visit? And then what do you enjoy doing there? My favorite city, hands down, is Paris, France. Been there many times. You know, Hemingway characterized it as a movable feast. I agree with him. Yes. You know, you take the overnight flight in, have breakfast somewhere, go see Mass. And of course, Notre Dame burned, but yes. I used to love to go see Mass at Notre Dame. And, mm-hmm. and it, you know, every neighborhood of the city is different. The architecture mm-hmm. is beautiful. I have many fond memories of Paris. I can go running the Bois de Boulogne. 
Yeah. You, you know, there, there is no shortage of outstanding restaurants, food, architecture, mm-hmm. art, music. It's just something I wouldn't want to live there any more than I, I, I love right. visiting New York. Yeah. Uh, I love the United States of America. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love this country because I've seen most of the world. Yes. But if I go any place to just check it out, Paris. Paris hands down. Why do you think Paris stands out? What What is it about Paris that you like the most? Or how did you discover that? So it's like uh, usually the, the when did the love affair begin? Years ago. And I think it was because the French oftentimes will do something simply because it is beautiful, right. whether it is architecture or yes. it is the food mm-hmm. or it is the wine or it is their music or in, in, in that they operate in a higher aesthetic ideal, which I just I really love. Mm-hmm. Now, General Patton once said in the middle of World War II, I would rather have a German division in front of me than a French division behind me. So I I recognize the weaknesses of France and other areas. Right. Um, But I, I, you know, but but for those elements, you know, if you're on vacation and you're looking to relax and enjoy yourself, you know, those things, food, wine, music, art, literature, architecture, Mm -hmm. they all come together in just a magic way in, 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 in Paris. It's definitely a unique place. So, so I know you're technology and you've been around technology a lot of your career. Is there something in your personal life, maybe an app or device of technology that you like to use and why you use it? Yeah. Well, we touched on my love of music and I, yeah. you know, there's again, having been at AWS and having seen just the, the, the explosion of apps that are available to everybody from the individual citizen to government to commercial use. Um, you know, part of what my job was in running the federal systems integration group mm-hmm. was identifying new technology that I could put at the disposal right. of the federal SIs who could then better meet the mission, their, their mm-hmm. mission with government. So I've been exposed to a tremendous amount. So I'm hard pressed to say anyone that I really enjoy the most, but I, I, I love that dynamic of just the, the sheer right. volume and the diversity mm-hmm. of applications that are available. I just appreciate that because it makes, you know, it, we're moving closer and closer to the Jetsons where you just yes. can you know, you know, pick what you want, pull yeah. it down and use it. Right. The, the one that I'm most fascinated with right now, it's really not cutting edge or, you know, it's mm-hmm. not sexy in any way, but I, I really like the Sonos music app. Yes. You know, I've got a bunch of Sonos speakers throughout the house and I've got a huge music collection, but right. it can't begin to compare with the entire catalog available in the cloud. Yes. And so I can, you know, I can pull down any music, any genre, you know, depending on my mood, time of day, what I'm Anytime. doing. It's just, it's that, that to me just opens up. It, again, right. it's like Paris. Right. It just opens up so much of interest to right. me that I, I, I really enjoy that app. It is a great ability that you can pull down anything you have. I know you did a couple of quotes. You mentioned a couple of different uh, books there. So is there something that's on your reading list right now that's uh, top of mind? Yeah, I, I usually have like two or three different books going at every, any different time, any different time on the, on the bed. You know, I read a little bit before bed and I haven't been doing too much business reading because, frankly, a lot of it starts to run sound a lot the same. Right. And that's not to say there's not some brilliant ones in the past, but I just, I haven't. So I just finished, a, there was a new book about the USS Indianapolis, the sinking of the Indianapolis, which mm-hmm. I thought was very compelling. It's a subject that's been done before. It came of interest during the, right. the Jaws movie. You know, yes. we talked about the sinking of the Indianapolis. Yes. I think uh, 1,200 men went into the water and 300 came out and the rest were taken by the sharks. Right. Right. So it's a, it's a pretty compelling and a horrific story. And it reminds us the duty we have to honor 
our mm-hmm. veterans uh, in a very stark way. But I, I, I thought it was a compelling book because it talked about, you know, breakdown in communication, you know, efforts by some to hide what really happened, both right. in the short term as well as the uh, in subsequent years, how the captain of the ship of the Indianapolis was wrongly accused for years. And, and his, his, what, what I found heart, heart-wrenching is how the fact that his crew, who had gone through so much, right. never gave up on him. And wow. he, he was stunned by the fact that they still loved him. They'd invite him to their reunions. I thought that was a, it was a touching story. Right. Also just finished reading G.K. Chesterton's uh, Aquinas, the Dumb Ox, about mm-hmm. St. Thomas Aquinas. Okay. Again, you know, sometimes you just want to get away from technology. You want yeah, to expand the sure. mind a little bit. Maybe it's the William and Mary education. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, but uh, whatever fancies you, that's what you got to go with. Yeah. So I think that's good. So uh, well, well, clearly you've shown some different things on uh, you like your history and you're like art. And you did a couple quotes. Do you have a favorite quote that you use or think of often that you may use in your daily or weekly rituals that you use? Anything that comes to mind? First one, again, going back to Winston Churchill. Yes. Never, ever, ever give up. That's the first one. And then, you know, pray to God as if it all depends on him. Look as if it all depends on you. You know, what I do, it's a high risk game and you got to work at it all the time. But uh, fortunately, you know, it's it's been a good run so far. Well, excellent. Well, that's all I have. I wanted to thank you for your time today coming in and talk with us. That's it. Thank you very much. Bill Sullivan, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us on Executive Perspective Behind the Business. Visit our website at www.washingtonexec.com for more content and episodes. 